This evening's talk <clears throat> is about kama, kama in Pali, or karma in Sanskrit, and beginning with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs to their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And beginning by saying something that I've found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. This is that this teaching, the teaching about Kama, offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of or belief in any higher authority or supreme being, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect cause and effect as it relates to all things, as it relates to all phenomena, and particularly as it, re, as it uh, relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching of Kama is not really something to be believed in, as it is something to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. As a Western woman, I think that I can safely say this for most all of us, all of us who have been primarily brought up and conditioned in Western-oriented countries, and I think it's also safe to say this for those of us who have been brought up in and acculturated, uh, at least in good part, in Asian cultures. And that is that it's kind of a relief, I think, to discover that it turns out that Kama is not some unreachable or strange concept. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of Kama is one of Buddhism's central themes. And it's really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that it somehow may elude our very complicated minds. So what is Kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word Kama is action or deed. And in the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation has a somewhat uh, deeper and subtler meaning than intention. The motivation behind or the motivation underneath or preceding intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done. Deeds done through volition. In the Buddha's teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. (coughs) So kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. 
the mental impetus which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. So this is the essence of kama. And some words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or two flavors of intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention leads to choose or to act or to speak in a wholesome way. An unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or to speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or wholesome motivation is wholesome kama. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct, immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life, is clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered uh, by way of my own uh, deep practice to be really quite amazing and illuminating is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma. Intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used and usually understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions, such as, I did that intentionally. Or we might ask, is that really what you meant to say? The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind and the heart to various experiences and sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, uh, body, and mind, all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. So in other words, intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in a particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, the heart, responds 
to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind, which means intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, by the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. Basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that is powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring even on a very, very subtle level when mindfulness is very strong and accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong momentary concentration or when a clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by a very well-developed access concentration. In light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that may not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of comma that's added to the stream of conditions which shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression and speech or action, the result, the Karmic, karmic result is strengthened in form of one's character traits and even through our bodily makeup such as maybe various physical expressions and even physical features as well as in the form of our verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and reactions that come to us, that we, in a, in a certain sense, draw to us from external sources, can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're not mindful, and are repeatedly acting out or practicing the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like this, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or we could say, everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive Kama, intention, doesn't really have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once many years ago when I was sitting a retreat, I got a note that was not at all pleasing to me. So I proceeded to quite angrily tear up that piece of paper that the note was written on even though that piece of paper itself had absolutely no importance in itself, the action of angrily tearing it up certainly had some effect on the quality 
of my mind, the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this, uh, much more recently, uh, in fact, uh, just before lunch today, (laughs) uh, I took a note off the board uh, in the dining room that um, had expired. And with a very neutral state of mind, I just simply threw it away. With that action producing a very different effect on the quality of the mind. A very different effect on the quality of my heart in those moments. If we repeatedly act out of angry or some degree of greedy intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the chain of or the wheel of dependent origination or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising which is the process of how the experience of experiences of dukkha or ease that we have via the six sense doors come to be how they manifest and then how they cease to be kama specifically in terms of intention is called the agent which fashions the mind so in light of this discussion I'd like to read some words from the Thai Buddhist scholar Venerable Peyuto And this is uh, from his book, Good, Evil, and Beyond, Kama in the Buddha's Teaching. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and it can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no comma, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity depending on accumulated comma. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called The Connected Discourses in the Woods where various uh, woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to uh, uh, certain monks, certain bhikkhus, who are practicing in those same woodland thickets. So I'd like to share one of these short uh, sutta dialogues as an illustration regarding what we're exploring this evening. And this uh, this is the verse about a, a bhikkhu, a monk, Uh, who, after returning from his daily alms rounds 
and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every single day, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, hmm, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice, the deva addresses the monk as follows. And the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. (laughs) You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The understanding that various experiences of stress, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and the experience of ease that these are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this very day, this very lifetime, and on back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born we spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our Kama. So a very everyday, ordinary example. Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, We've totally lost control over it. And yet, on some level, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease in our mind and heart is the outcome, that it is, meaning that it is the response or the reaction in our own mind in relationship to all of the external and internal happenings that we experience. 
So in other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. So remember, in last night's Dhamma talk, Sue Ann, Big Crow's response to all of the heckling coming from the spectators at the basketball game in Leed, South Dakota. Our ease and happiness, or dis-ease and suffering, is not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious, strange, or foreign world. And again, some words from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and how they cease. In other words, to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that intentions and motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome response, wholesome, responsive, creative choices, rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are really good, meaning bringing and promoting health when we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and they bring disease. Or they might even be poisonous for us, maybe even deadly. And so we pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind or underneath the potential action and feed ourselves and thus others as well healthy food and consequently create healthy kama. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we continue to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we in fact are the owners or the heirs of our kama and that in this knowing we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and a more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding with the way of things, we're living in conflict, we're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, 
it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, meaning we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We truly begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint or clay or marble or music or pencil, pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body and heart and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in knowing this we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we know our motivations, the more we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, some degree of thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, meaning the wholesome or unwholesome flavor of our thoughts, are conditioned by our intentions our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, by our understanding, with our views often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, what direct our intentions and the resultant thoughts, which potentially then flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings, and things, and even situations, experiences, and places being independent, separate, and static, meaning being solidly in place and unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance. We're ignoring, we're ignorant of, we're ignoring the truth of things. Consequently, we're motivated by what is called wrong view in the Buddha's teachings. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations, are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering, inevitably bring a sense of unsatisfactoriness to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially, through practice, growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only 
because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that, in fact, the causes and the conditions themselves are also always in flux. That nothing, that no thing abides independently or separately or is solid or static. Our intentions, our motivations, are then coming out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations, are coming out of what is called right view. So our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony, come from a place of a lightness of being, and are more and more often appropriately responsive to any given situation, and consequently then are beneficial both in both overt and in subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Monks, nuns, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, (coughs) and mental proliferations, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It is like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd placed in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because because the seed is not good. Monks, nuns, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are yielding of, the, all are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It is like the seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a seed of fruit planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. So with our practice, we're planting, moving towards more and more planting of good seeds. An important aspect of right view in relationship to what we call self or me is at least in part and very often in reference to this body that we have. So, as has briefly been explored uh, in earlier Dhamma talks, this body is actually not a solid something, but rather a process made up, a process, I uh, emphasize process, made up of many elements, which each and all of them themselves being in continual flux. So what I'm referring to are the experiential characteristics of the four great elements that we come to know very directly through our practice. 
So just as a, a brief review, and just to say that the term earth element is a concept. The term water element is a concept. The term fire element is a concept. What we know, what we learn, is through the direct experience of the characteristics of each of these elements, which are available anytime, all the time, actually. So the characteristics that we are learning to know that are under the... Uh, under the uh, term earth element, hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The experiential elements that we come to know through our practice under the term the water element are flowing and cohesion. The experiential characteristics that we come to know under the term fire element are heat, warmth, cold or coolness. And the term or the experiential characteristics that we come to know under the term of the wind element or the air element are supporting, pushing. This experiential, non-ordinary understanding of the body can be an important and an illuminating step on the path of right view in relationship to directly, experientially understanding not-self, directly, experientially understanding impersonality. It's in this light that the Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished, and some seeds may be dormant for many, many years, maybe even many lifetimes. So it's one way of maybe understanding heredity from a Buddhist perspective. So they might be dormant, as I said, for many lifetimes, until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate them germinate these seeds. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. So an obvious and very clear metaphor that's often used in uh, the Buddhist teachings is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. If we plant poppy flower seeds, no matter how much and how strong we hope that uh, lettuce will not grow from these popping flower seeds. A loving act at some point bears loving fruit. Angry or hateful acts at some point produce hateful fruit. So the words from the Buddha that we began our evening with, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. An important and maybe maybe uh, obvious point here is that not-self or impersonality, another way of describing that, Uh, behind our actions does not discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force, as I've been trying to uh, say, that inevitably makes itself felt. So we need to couple our understanding of selflessness, our understanding of not-self, with a very 
mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions of mind, speech, and body. If we're unaware of the motivations in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we then may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And some words from Padmasambhava, said to have, the person who was said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to uh, Tibet and Bhutan. Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our intentions before we speak or act and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they have been said and performed has the effect of really, truly broadening our field of choice as we practice to purify and transform our mind, heart, and actions so that we're not kind of running on automatic, so that we're not running on habitual ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity and loving-kindness and compassion towards others It comes back to us and we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression, with anger, with judgment and greed or grasping. A very important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in, or how you approach the situation of this moment. So for instance, the appropriate and and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause may be, is compassion. Always. As we traverse this path through our practice, we really more and more clearly begin to see and know that there's a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion, fear, anger, resistance, discontent, clinging, it's a long list, can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivation, wholesome intentions, thoughts and words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now. Even in the midst of what might be some kind of hardship in our current life. And of course, our practice itself. 
this incredible training of the mind and the heart is a very, very good deed. The best, really. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. I think many of us have had some conditioning such as, well, too bad, it's too late. Or maybe we're conditioned in some way to think, well, I'm, I'm just too old. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. None of this conditioning is true. It's absolutely not true. It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in in our mind and our heart, the heart and mind become more tranquil and serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to all of the various challenges and difficulties that come up in our practice and that come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds seem to bring us maybe some sorrow or some discomfort or pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some maybe upheaval or turmoil in our life. Or maybe in, maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be at all what we've expected, not be what we had in mind. Results that seem maybe contrary to what we might think of uh, that our motivation, our intention was. Many, many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a very close look at my motivations and at my expectations. And most importantly in those moments, to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering, if we make unsatisfactoriness our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. And maybe sometimes it feels like a very stern and in a certain way quite a demanding teacher. Yet potentially it's a very truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, 
to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. To free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. Being reborn again and again into the realm of unsatisfactoriness. I'd like to uh, read uh, uh, an excerpt from a book called And There Was Light by a man named Jacques Lucirin. Jacques Lucirin was uh, involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section from his autobiography that very beautifully illuminates our discussion of Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not all as I imagined it, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not all at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident, and there was anguish, a lack, something like a void, which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined, and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment. And I can say without hesitation that from time, from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing that this, that was that for this, excuse me, the amazing thing was that this was not magic for me at all but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes deny what they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them, withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. 
Still, there were times when the light faded almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything was in the room. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism so worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I only had to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. We have to learn it, for every time we forget that we are not alone in the world, we strike against an object, hurt ourselves, and are called to order. But each time we remember, we are rewarded, for everything comes our way. Closing the talk with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And the Buddha goes on to say, All conditions have minds, has, have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.